Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. Have you ever said something you wished you could take back? Something rash, something in haste, something not fully thought through? Have you ever made a promise or vow to do something that was ill-advised? Something you immediately knew you'd regret having to deliver on? Something that ended up making your current situation worse and not better? In saying something you wished you could take back, in making that ill-advised promise or vow, have you ever, for the sake of being emphatic, to underscore you're serious and you mean business, have you ever invoked the name of the Lord? You know, adding or ending with a statement like, I swear to God. Well, today, as we return to the book of 1 Samuel, there's going to be some serious swearing going on. Not the bad kind that you're thinking of right now, but then again, not the kind that's really any better. When we last left our story, Israel's new and first king named Saul got the people tangled up in a war with their rival, the Philistines. Outnumbered, outgunned, Saul was not without the promise of the Lord's intervention, but it was just in seven days' time. As Saul's fear increased, however, as the size of his army gradually decreased, impatience got the better of him, and he took matters, what belonged to God, into his own hands. When he was confronted with his premature actions, Saul didn't own his mistakes. He didn't own his failure. He just made excuses. Saul blamed his circumstances and other people for his choices. Instead of choosing to be repentant and forgiven, Saul insisted he was right in doing wrong. And the net result of his defiance was that his family's dynasty would end before it even really got started. When Saul's reign concludes, the crown of Israel will go to someone else not related to him. More immediately, however, as we come into chapter 14, a massive Philistine army remains poised to attack and to demolish Israel. Saul, who has disconnected himself from the direct line to God, the prophet Samuel, has retreated back home, and Saul's unsure of what to do next. King Saul's son, Jonathan, however, isn't prepared to throw in the towel just yet. Unlike his father, Jonathan isn't prepared to let go of the Lord's direction. Instead of retreating, Jonathan is about to move forward. Jonathan's about to move Israel forward by faith. As we're about to hear, Jonathan's daring plan might just work. That is, if all King Saul's needless swearing doesn't end up ruining everything. Now, there's a lot going on in this part of the story today, so keep your Bibles open after we hear a few of the highlights from 1 Samuel chapter 14. Here it comes. Good morning, Grace. I hope you're having a blessed Sunday. God has graced us indeed. Today's reading comes from the first book of Samuel, the 14th chapter, and they are verses 1 through 3, 13 through 17, and 24 through 30. Here we go. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, Come, let us go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gebeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. 
With him were about 600 men, among who were Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was a son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitab, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. Jonathan had climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area about a half of an acre. Then panic struck the whole army those in the camp and field and those in the outposts and raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Saul's lookouts in Gebeah and Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. Then Saul said to the men who were with him, muster the forces and see who was left with us. When they did, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were not there. Now the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. The entire army entered the woods and there was honey on the ground. When they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out, yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with the oath. So he reached out to the end of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb. He raised his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Then one of the soldiers told him, your father bound the army under a strict oath saying, cursed be anyone who eats food today. That is why the men are faint. Jonathan said, My father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes are brightened when I tasted a little bit of this honey? How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they had taken from their enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We caught a few glimpses of what proved to be an eventful day in the life of Israel through our scripture reading. Now let's get the whole story of what took place, of what almost happened, but thankfully didn't. And as we're listening, let's pay particular attention as to why things played out the way they did. We have something of a time jump as our story resumes with the phrase, one day. Prior to this one day, Israel's army again has retreated to their camp in Gebeah. In the meantime, the Philistines have been raiding the neighboring villages. There's this deep ravine about a mile wide that stands between the two encampments. Israel's military camp is on the south side, while the much larger forces of the Philistines occupy the north. King Saul, who previously acted out of his impatience, now appears more than willing to wait. Not on the Lord, but to wait for the Philistines to make their next move. Jonathan, his son, however, has other ideas, a seemingly crazy plan to go up to the Philistine camp with his armor bearer, just the two of them, and pick a fight. Now, you might think 
The heat must be getting to poor old Jonathan, that he's got some sort of death wish or this is some kind of suicide mission, but we soon learn there is indeed a method to his madness. Jonathan's plan is for he and his armor bearer to show themselves to the Philistines and then to see how the Lord directs him. If the Philistines ask them for a fight and tell them to come up, then this will be the sign that God has given Jonathan the victory. Now, I want to be clear, Jonathan doesn't know for sure what God will do. As he declares, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Jonathan doesn't presume what will happen next. He merely creates room for the Lord to give him some direction. Now, despite an uncertain outcome, two men, two who are clearly outmatched, willingly step forward, not foolishly, but out of great faith in the Lord's promise to save Israel. Jonathan acts out of hope, believing nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Climbing out of the ravine and making their presence visible, Jonathan and his armor bearer are indeed taunted by the Philistines to come up and fight. Receiving the sign from God for which they asked, Jonathan and his armor bearer together answer the Philistines' challenge and take out 20, 20 of their soldiers. Soon after this, the Lord affirming Jonathan's faith makes his presence known in a powerful way as he puts fear into the hearts of the Philistines, as he unleashes a mild earthquake that sends the Philistine forces running in all kinds of different directions. In all the confusion, the Philistines start turning on each other. And some Israelite deserters or mercenaries who were fighting for the Philistines even change their allegiance and take sides with Jonathan. The tide of the battle is turning. Meanwhile, back at the Israelite camp in Gebeah, the watchmen of the Israelite outpost start to notice all the confusion and chaos about a mile or so away in the Philistine camp. Once King Saul gets word about this, he realizes someone from his forces has initiated this attack upon the Philistines. He does an immediate roll call, and sure enough, Jonathan and his armor bearer are found to be missing. Now, despite the report that he's receiving, King Saul does not mobilize his forces at first. Saul's initial instinct is to consult the Lord before he takes action. But as the total disarray in the Philistine camp keeps increasing, once again, King Saul loses his patience. Circumstances are just moving way too fast for him. And so Saul abruptly decides he can't wait, literally interrupting, pulling the plug right in the middle of seeking to discern God's will. Saul and his troops join the battle against the Philistines, the Philistines who in their confusion are pretty much taking out themselves. Israel's inferior army, both in terms of its size and technology, soon has the once larger and superior Philistine forces on the run. But everyone in Israel knows who saved them that day, the Lord God Almighty. Everyone, that is, except King Saul. You see, in the midst of this miraculous turnaround on the battlefield, as Israel is in hot pursuit of the remaining Philistine troops, Saul makes it pretty clear he perceives this to be his battle, his victory. This becomes obvious as King Saul orders his soldiers not to eat anything until evening comes. Not before, and these are Saul's own words, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. Not Israel's enemies, not God's enemies, Saul's enemies. This battle and its victory belong not to the Lord, but to Saul. 
Saul not only orders his men to continue without any food for the rest of the day, he binds them to this by a solemn oath, a vow before the Lord. King Saul swears to God, if anyone in his army eats anything before nightfall, that person will be cursed and put under the Lord's judgment. Now, vows made unto God were not to be taken lightly, and they weren't supposed to be uttered lightly either. So why does Saul do this? There's no indication that God instructed him to take such a vow. This is all Saul's doing. But again, why? To exercise a little authority and show who's boss? To put the fear of God in his soldiers in order to keep them focused? To look pious, impress the Lord, and perhaps curry some divine favor? To sound like he's in closer communication with God than he actually is? We don't know why Saul did it. All we know is by taking such an oath, Saul not only invokes a curse upon his men if they disobey him, he also curses his men to suffer in the throes of the victory that the Lord had gift-wrapped and put into their hands. Onward, through the heat of the day, the soldiers would fight, getting exhausted, dehydrated, and losing their stamina, but being denied the means to regain their physical strength even when there is precious sweet honey oozing before them as they are in the forest. And yet, none of them ate any of it. Now, in our modern Western culture, nobody takes oaths seriously anymore, unless they're in a courtroom. Nobody takes oaths seriously anymore. But in the ancient world, swearing to God, making a vow in the name of the Lord, was serious business. It was a binding matter. There was no just kidding. There were no takebacks. There were no, if you broke your oath, oh, it's okay. If you broke your oath back then, if you didn't keep your word, there were serious consequences. That's why we're told no one ate of the honey in the forest because they feared the oath. But not everyone was there. Not everyone was present when King Saul bound the people to this oath. Remember Jonathan? Jonathan who's been fighting longer than anyone else. Jonathan who, because he took the initiative to start this battle, he wasn't present when Saul swore to God. And apparently he missed the memo. Completely unaware, Jonathan, when he sees some of that delicious honey, has himself a taste and we're told his eyes brightened, meaning he got some light, some life, some energy back in his countenance. It's only after it's too late that Jonathan finds out from a fellow soldier about his father's vow and its consequences. Jonathan, surprisingly in response, doesn't hesitate to call out the foolishness of what his father, the king, has done. And he calls out his foolishness not in terms of what's going to happen to him, Jonathan. He calls out this foolishness in regard to what's already happening, the weakened condition of all the king's men from not eating any food. Jonathan points out, if the soldiers could have eaten just a little, the defeat of the Philistines would have been greater. Perhaps they would have broken the back of their rule once and for all. But since the soldiers are faint, Depleted from hunger, their victory against the Philistines is less than it might have actually been. When that long day finally comes to an end, King Saul's troops are so exhausted, they are so consumed with hunger that as the sun goes down, they begin to slaughter the domestic animals that they have captured from the Philistines. It's really gross. They ravenously cut up the livestock and begin to eat the meat with the blood. In other words, they don't take the time to properly and reasonably drain the blood from those choice cuts. Not very sanitary. 
And more specifically, it's a violation of the Lord's repeated command in Genesis, Leviticus, Deuteronomy about the proper, the healthy way to prepare a steak, to honor the blood, the life that only God can give. Now, when this is pointed out to King Saul, he accuses his men of breaking faith and has a large stone set up as a makeshift altar that can be used to properly drain all the blood from the meat. Saul takes no responsibility when he accuses his men of breaking faith when it was his foolish oath that had caused them to stumble in the first place. Once his army is eaten and is refreshed, Saul wants to continue the pursuit of the Philistines under the cover of night. He's all raring to go. He's itching at the fauntion at the bit. He's about to give the order when the priest traveling with them, not the king, when the priest puts on the brakes and asks, uh, shouldn't we ask the Lord about this? So King Saul prays to God. King Saul prays, but then he receives no answer from heaven. There's just silence on the other end of the line. My friends, sometimes no answer from God is an answer from God. To wait for the Lord's timing in getting some direction. But as we've seen, patience isn't Saul's strong suit. Instead, the king interprets God's silence. Ah, I know, it's a sign of judgment. Something is wrong, Saul thinks. Someone has sinned. Aha! The sin that Saul specifically means here is breaking the oath he bound everyone under. Someone has eaten food when they weren't supposed to. Then, even though King Saul has just witnessed how his, his vow backfired and caused his troop trouble for his troops with all the blood and the meat, he doubles down and swears to God again, vowing to kill the person who broke the oath, even if it's his own son. Now, at this point, we know, everyone in Israel knows, that Saul has said something he shouldn't have, something he's going to want to take back. This, <laughs> this is not a good decision. This is foolishness on top of foolishness. Moments ago, the Lord was silent when the king asked a question. And now that silence thickens. Things get awkward. As in response to Saul's interrogation, we're told not one of his men said a word. No one steps forward. And when no one steps forward, King Saul looks to heaven and questions God yet again as to his silence. Continuing to press for an answer, Saul uses the other standard religious method from his day for advancing towards the truth. He casts lots. And surprise, surprise, the lot finally falls on Jonathan. Jonathan is technically guilty for breaking the oath, even though he didn't know anything about it. If we call it a sin, it's what's known as a sin of omission rather than a sin of commission. It's an accident. It's a mistake. It's not a willful, rebellious choice. Frustratingly, none of this process addresses Saul's own knowing sin. After all, it was his foolishness of swearing to God that created this whole mess in the first place. It was King Saul's doubling down on that foolishness, swearing to God again, that made the punishment for this mistake a death sentence. A death sentence now for his own son. Jonathan's response in this moment highlights both the tension and the ridiculousness of this situation when he says, I tasted a little honey and now I must die. Most Bible translations have an exclamation point at the end of what Jonathan says here, but there were no such punctuation marks in the original Hebrew language. So Jonathan's statement here may be well in the form of a question like this, I tasted a little honey and now I must die? 
With the king's judgment way out of proportion to the offense, Jonathan has to ask whether eating a little honey was really something for which he should be executed. So once again, King Saul finds himself in a bind of his own making, just like in chapter 13. It was wrong to make that first and that second oath. It would be wrong to break both oaths as they were supposed to be binding. But it would also be wrong to follow through if they were both bad oaths, which they were to begin with. No matter what Saul does, he's going to be wrong. He's going to be wrong. So then what can the king possibly do? He can do the only thing we have left, the only right way to move forward when we confront our total failure, our brokenness as human beings. He can admit he's wrong. Confess, repent, and fall on the mercy and grace of God. But shockingly, absurdly, the king triple dog dares as he swears to God a third time, binding himself to another oath. May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if Jonathan, you do not die. Saul is willing to let Jonathan die, to take his own son's life rather than own up to his mistakes, rather than lose face and admit he was wrong. But ironically, losing face, losing the confidence of his men is exactly what does end up happening in this moment for the king. Because you see, all his soldiers who now, before now, had gone along, who had been, under, been bound under Saul's foolish vows thus far, now they draw a line in the sand, here and now. They refuse to follow the orders of their king. They will not allow Saul to execute Jonathan they recognize what Saul cannot or will not see despite all the vows he's taken in God's name, that the Lord is not behind Saul's proclamations and judgments, that on the other hand, the Lord has revealed himself, his presence, his favor through the miraculous victory he has given Israel through Jonathan. In what is surely not a coincidental move, King Saul's men counter his foolish oaths with a righteous one of their own. The people of Israel swear to God that Jonathan is not going to be executed. And just like that, a day which held such promise with a miraculous victory over the Philistines ends rather darkly, with Israel giving up pursuit and the Philistines simply withdrawing to their own land. A father has put himself at odds with his son. A king finds himself alienated from his own people. Saul is left, if you can believe it, even more isolated than when Samuel departed in chapter 13. And it all happened. Things got worse, not better, because King Saul, despite all his swearing to God, was attempting to use the Lord rather than allowing the Lord to use him. Consider the stark contrast in this story between Jonathan and Saul in their approach, in their relationship with the Lord. Jonathan seeks God's guidance. He doesn't presume to know what the Lord is doing. Jonathan believes and trusts the Lord will act on behalf of his people, but he doesn't attempt to force or manipulate God to act the way he, Jonathan, wants. Instead, he seeks an indication, some type of direction from the Lord. Jonathan, as he stresses God's sovereign freedom in verse 6, Jonathan leaves room for God to speak for himself and listens. And when the Lord speaks, then Jonathan acts accordingly, and a miraculous victory is the result. While Jonathan seeks God's guidance, 
King Saul tries to force God's silence. First, Saul can't be bothered to wait for the Lord to answer. He cuts short the prayers of discernment that have been initiated. Ponder this for a moment. Ponder that. Saul asks God a question and then decides he doesn't want to wait for an answer. So he basically silences God. Later, when it's God who's silent, Saul at first decides to put words in the Lord's mouth. Conveniently, Saul's own words in God's mouth, as he assumes that God's silence, oh, it's got to be some form of judgment against whoever violated the oath that he, Saul, invoked not from the Lord's direction, but simply in the Lord's name. Ironically, the king doesn't even think to look at himself to consider the sin that needs to be dealt with is his own, his foolish oath, that God's silence might be because Saul, with all his swearing, never leaves any room for the Lord to speak. Instead, Saul assumes that it's somebody else, someone within his ranks, either who's personally sinned or who knew of sin within their ranks. And so Saul doubles down on swearing in God's name and turns one small, innocent act of eating honey into a capital offense. And when the silence continues to remain unbroken, Saul purposes to force the Lord to say something through the casting of lots. And when God finally reveals to King Saul that he's about to execute the one man of faith through whom he, the Lord, has given victory to Israel, his son Jonathan, Saul still refuses to admit he was wrong as he swears a third time in God's name. Three foolish oaths that reveal threefold how King Saul's primary motivation in invoking the name of the Lord is not for God's glory, but for Saul's benefit. In swearing to God the first time, Saul is less interested in Israel's protection than in exacting his own personal revenge on his enemies. He says so himself. In swearing to God the second time, Saul purposes to get some answers to his questions rather than stepping back and listening to what the Lord is trying to reveal to him. In swearing to God the third and final time, Saul tries to look like a man of his word, someone who means business to be taken seriously rather than yielding seriously to the word of God and acknowledging he was wrong. King Saul projects the appearance of a devout and religious person. King Saul projects the appearance of someone who's earnestly seeking to follow the Lord, but in the end, it takes his own men to show Saul how wrong he is, that he as king is not only about to wrongly execute his own son, but the very person whom the Lord is revealing his presence through. All of Saul's swearing didn't make things better. It only made things worse. The king's vow didn't rally the troops. It just created an exhausted army. The king's vow didn't win the battle. It actually allowed Israel's enemies, the Philistines, to survive and fight again yet another day. The king's vow didn't demonstrate Saul's strength. It exposed his weakness his attempt to manipulate God for his, Saul's own ends, rather than to serve the Lord. Beloved, we tend to throw the Lord's name around quite a bit, invoking the character and will of God as the justification for lots of our claims and many of our decisions. I mean, there's certainly been a lot of that in the last 12 months, hasn't there? We swear to God all the time, presuming the Lord's endorsement of whatever it is we're promising, presuming the Lord's endorsement of whatever it is we're asserting. I wonder, though, how often we end up trying to put words in God's mouth like Saul, 
rather than leaving room and listening like Jonathan for the Lord to speak. Over this last year, I've had lots of conversations with all kinds of Christians, and most followers of Jesus have had no problem, no problem telling me in view of the pandemic, the political landscape, the election, all the marches and the protests, most followers of Jesus have had no problem whatsoever telling me the right and the wrong way to look at what's going on, about how to react, the correct decisions that need to be made, and the acceptable actions that need to be taken in response to all of it. The telling thing is, most Christians that I've talked to suddenly get silent and blank-faced when I ask just, one question. And it's a question, by the way, that started with me in my own quiet time with Jesus, in the midst of my own proclivity for swearing and invoking the Lord's name over this last year. Here's the question. What do you think? What is your understanding of how Jesus has been seeking to direct and guide us in speaking and acting over these last 12 months? Have we ever even bothered to ask? In the silence and waiting for an answer, have we, like Saul, just assumed we know what Jesus is up to? How Jesus has been speaking and moving? Is it possible? Is it possible that all the stuff we've been claiming in Christ's name, all the actions we've taken that we, have, that we assert have been for the sake of God's glory, have actually been to serve our own personal agendas and ambitions? what we've wanted for ourselves rather than what the Lord wanted from us. And in the midst of some questionable things over this last year that we've said and done as Christians, in the aftermath of what have proven to be some foolish assertions that we've made, as our children and our grandchildren continue to call us out for speaking and acting in ways that are clearly contrary to Christ, that don't line up with actually following Jesus, are we willing to admit we're wrong? Are we willing to demonstrate that asking for forgiveness and making repentance isn't just something we tell others they need to do, but is part of our daily submission to Christ? Or are we like King Saul? doubling or tripling down, swearing in God's name, and only making things worse, liable to get somebody killed. Beloved, pious language and religious acts in the name of Jesus are not the same thing as speaking and acting in reflection of the character of Christ. When God speaks, truly speaks, the Lord not only means what he says, the Lord does what he says. There is no idle speech, there is no cheap language, there is no empty talk when it comes to God speaking. The integrity of God's word is backed by that word not returning empty, always doing what it says, being true to promises given, and creating new possibilities in the midst of what seems impossible. And that means whenever we dare speak for God, whenever we swear in the Lord's name, let's be careful. Let's be sure whatever we're saying is what God means, what the Lord has promised and purposed to do. Before we attach God's name to anything or anyone, let's take care to make sure whatever or whoever it is we're putting God's name on embodies the way 
Jesus lovingly and truthfully served others. The way Jesus sacrificially and forgivingly lived and died, not just for those in power, not just for the majority, but for all the world. Let us then stop swearing to God all the time and instead give pause and reflect on the good news of the gospel that despite all our foolish speech, our vain talk and empty promises, the Lord in Christ has sworn himself to us forever. Let's stop trying through our assertions and edicts to bind Jesus to our will, to our subjective notions of what's good or bad, right or wrong, false or true, and instead realize we are bound together by the love and grace of God and we are compelled to follow Jesus. And it's only in submission to him, it's only in continually listening and learning from Jesus that our victory is to be found each day and eventually in eternity. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.